Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Welcome everybody to today's episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you, Rick? I'm doing well, Sarah. Yourself, you don't look like you have your normal surroundings, so I assume we're not going to see a cat today. No cats today. I am logging in from Utah, actually. I am on vacation recording a podcast, so. You shouldn't be working. What are you doing? Well, this really, this really isn't work. I love it, so. It's always a good time. It is, yes. So what do we have going on today? So October is uh, neonatal group B strep awareness month. So our guest is in that realm and we're very happy to have Dr. Ann Anderson Berry on who is a pediatrician and neonatologist. Thanks for coming on Dr. Anderson Berry. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and happy to talk uh, up with the two of you and any of your listeners about group B strep and other things infectious related uh, around neonatology. Yeah, outstanding. We've had uh, um, some pediatrician uh, ID people on a few times, but we've never had a neonatologist. So this is this is great. Uh, I think we're going to learn a lot today. Yeah, I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) If not, we'll have fun at least, right? (laughs) We always have fun. Um, So let's start with a little bit of um, introducing yourself and your current position and what you're doing. All right. I am Ann Anderson Berry. I am a neonatologist by medical training, and I wear a lot of different hats uh, in my current uh, career. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up, so I just keep trying out different uh, roles. But I am the medical director of the NICU at Nebraska Medicine here in Omaha, Nebraska. That's a role I've held for around 12 years. I'm also the division chief of neonatology at uh, the University of Nebraska Medical Center and Children's Hospital and Medical Center. So I support a phenomenal group of neonatologists uh, across the career uh, lifespan from uh, right out of fellowship to nearing retirement. And that is also an amazing job. And then And as you will probably discover over the next hour, I'm pretty passionate about research as well. And I'm excited to hold the role of executive director of the Child Health Research Institute, which is the newest uh, Board of Regents approved institute on the UNMC campus, co-sponsored by Children's Hospital and Medical Center. So with that, I get to combine the amazing resources from a clinical standpoint of a freestanding children's hospital that really serves our entire region with the academic resources for research of a major academic research university at UNMC. So I have a lot of fun things that I get to do in any given day. That's very awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, outstanding. So, um, you know, I'm an infectious disease doc, an adult infectious disease doc. So we do a little bit of peds in maybe med school and maybe we hear about kids and everything else. So um, uh, did you know you wanted to do pediatrics and neonatology or where did the spark come from that, uh, that you got into this field? Yeah, it's, um, I'm not, I don't come from a medical family. And so, 
my first thought about medical school was uh, when I went into undergrad thinking I was going to be a scientist living in Wyoming for the rest of my life. And I looked around <laughs> at the one four-year university at the University of Wyoming and realized that there wasn't going to be a lot of mobility in the faculty <laughs> positions that were available in the time frame that I needed them to be available. So I thought I better expand uh, my career choices if I want to live in Wyoming for the rest of my life. Uh, and so I thought, well, I could be a physician. That's pretty close to science. So I applied to medical school. Uh, ended up, Wyoming had a contract with Creighton. So I came to Omaha, interviewed at Creighton. And one of the only things that I can remember about that interview day is my tour of the NICU it was pretty striking for me. Um, as um, I um, entered Creighton and kind of worked my way through medical school, we were lucky enough to be exposed to a couple weeks of rounding in the NICU in our third year. And then I chose that as an elective in the fourth year. And I was really always drawn to either maternal fetal medicine or neonatology. So it was sort of trying to decide, was I more interested in the delivery or did I want to follow that sick baby into the NICU? And uh, I think I made the right choice uh, in uh, choosing pediatrics and then uh, neonatology, even though uh, my dream of going back home to live in Wyoming was then kaput because there are no NICUs in the entire state of Wyoming. And so, uh, I made, uh, I made a good choice and, uh, I still have a career that allows me to get, to get to the mountains and get home to see my family pretty frequently, but I've never looked back once I chose neonatology, not a second of regret. Where in Wyoming are you from? I grew up on a ranch outside of Casper, Wyoming. So right in the center of the state mm -hmm. uh, and uh, my family homesteaded in Wyoming in the 1800s. So uh, we have uh, a long history there and um, just a, a really love of the land and the mountains and, um, and getting outdoors. So it's something that, you know, the only thing Nebraska is missing is a mountain. That's what I say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe not the only thing, but <laughs> some of it. <laughs> but yeah, little known fact, actually, my grandparents, uh, uh, my grandfather was uh, retired from Warren. And so I spent a fair amount of time in Wyoming when I was really young, went to like second grade there or something in between moves. And we went to Frontier Days like every year for the first like 12 years of my life or something like that. So it's a fun time. That's for sure that they call it the rodeo, the daddy of them all. And yeah. uh, it really is the, the country music concerts are really fun too. So, yeah. So training wise, so you did med school, obviously then a pediatrics residency, and then you have to do a neonatology fellowship, correct? That is correct. And how long is that? Yeah. So PEDS is three years and then neonatology is three years. It's um, a year of intensive clinical service time, three years of call, and uh, then two years that you really are um, meant to focus on academic interests. Um, when I trained, it's getting to be a, a longer time ago when I trained, it really meant that you got to focus two years on research, uh, educational activities and uh, other endeavors weren't approved at that time. Uh, but that was fine with me because I loved the thought of uh, being in a lab, asking clinical questions, asking, asking basic science questions. And I was at the University of Utah where they had really strong um, neonatal physiology. They had a lamb intensive care unit 
We worked with a chick model and pulmonary vascular development. And then I got to do some epidemiology while I was there. Uh, interestingly, uh, for this audience on um, a staph epi outbreak that was uh, it had in increased mortality in our NICU patients. So it was a very virulent resistant strain. And, um, you know, we were treating it with multiple drugs and ended up with combos of Vank and Rifampin to really get kids to turn the corner from persistent positive cultures, decompensation and death. So that was a pretty interesting foray into my first, um, kind of epidemiology looking at, um, looking at what was happening in a population over a course of time. That's very interesting. Um, is the Neodontology Fellowship a popular program? It's one of the most popular uh, pediatric fellowships. Um, pediatric subspecialists are um, rare as hen's teeth uh, as <laughs> we try to uh, recruit into our um, growing uh, children's um, Department of Peds practice, uh, there are fewer and fewer people that are going into the pediatric uh, subspecialties and uh, in sub subspecialties, you know, we're training as few as 18 a year uh, for the entire country. And so uh, we're luckier in neonatology that a good number of our trainees um, do choose neonatology, uh, but we rely on those other subspecialties so much, Peds ID, um, you know, peds endocrine, uh, a lot of those subspecialties can be very difficult to, um, to hire. So if anybody listening is considering peds, uh, there is good job security in the pediatric subspecialty field. Awesome. I, I think that, uh, there are a lot of people that uh, just don't know about these things. So I think the more we get that out, the, the better for everybody, which is a big point of our podcast. So thank you for that. Now, you also mentioned that there's not a NICU in the state of Wyoming. So I imagine that a large portion of these, uh, are in major population areas where you have to have a significant population. And so you get lots of transfers from everywhere else. And how big is the neonatal network in the United States? Such like, like, I assume you have different levels as well, level one, level two, level three. Exactly. Yeah. There are four levels of NICUs. Level one would be your basic uh, small community hospital that delivers babies. But if anything goes wrong, they're picking up the phone, uh, you know, five minutes ago. And then level two, you can take care of a baby that needs maybe a little bit of oxygen or uh, some, um, you know, help with a feeding tube, maybe some IV antibiotics. Um, and then level three, you're starting to get into quite a bit more sophisticated care. So then you're ventilating patients, uh, maybe doing some pediatric uh, surgery support. You have access to pediatric subspecialists. So you really have to have a pretty sophisticated uh, level of uh, nursing, respiratory therapy, uh, laboratory support services, x-ray support services, those types of things to run uh, a good level three. And then with a, in level three, you'll hear people We'll talk about level three, a level three B, uh, those just, um, kind of start to add on services like high frequency oscillatory ventilation or inhaled nitric oxide. Um, uh, again, those surgical services support, and then we get to level four and level four is where there's 
really nothing that you don't do. So you're supporting babies that need cardiac surgery. That's often uh, the the determining factor between level three and level four. Do you have access to um, uh, ECMO, which is um, heart-lung bypass for babies? Uh, and do you have access to cardiac surgery support? So here in Omaha at uh, Nebraska Medicine, we have a high acuity level three. So we have surgeries, we have all of the ventilators, we have nitric oxide, uh, but we don't provide those cardiac services. And we've transitioned the ECMO program over to Children's Hospital as well. So Children's Hospital is our regional level four hospital. And uh, so we serve babies, um, you know, occasionally from across the country, but uh, definitely from across Nebraska, Northern Kansas, Missouri, Western Iowa, South Dakota. Uh, so we have a pretty big um, catchment area for our level four services. And, and we're lucky to have a full complement of pediatric subspecialists to serve those babies. Such a great program. Um, we've talked a lot before on the podcast that, you know, children are not just small adults. They have their own needs. I'm sure neonates are even um, more specific in their needs than um, your normal pediatric patient. Do you have like specific challenges with neonates? Yeah. That is a hundred percent true. Sarah, thanks for bringing that up. So <laughs> number one, yes, to adults, but then neonates uh, and the variety of neonates that we serve in the NICU is pretty mind blowing. So we talk about the limits of viability being now right around 22 weeks gestation. So not even quite um, just over halfway to that 40 week due mark due date which is what we're aiming for hundred percent of the time, 40 weeks or bust, right? But, um, you know, we serve babies, you know, uh, among call tonight, there's a baby that's under 400 grams in our NICU right now. Uh, if you can think about that baby is like this big, I went and saw him this morning just to check in for my call shift. And, um, and then we'll get uh, babies that are term, say infants of diabetic moms with overgrowth syndrome who can be born at five kilos. So that's like a 12 plus fold difference in size. You, you know, there's a lot of variation in shapes of adults, but they are not 12 fold difference. And so if you think about the scope of the endotracheal tubes and the laryngoscopes that I need to put an endotracheal tube in or the size of an IV to fit into the vein of, you know, a baby that's 400 grams, um, you know, there's just such a wide variety of needs. And then the specialized protocols, particularly for those youngest, smallest babies, uh, to prevent the, um, uh, the horrible complications that can sometimes come with prematurity. So we're worried about intraventricular hemorrhage, which can cause um, difficulties um, with um, brain damage, cerebral palsy, uh, difficulties with learning. Uh, then we worry about um, pulmonary development. So chronic lung disease and needing to have oxygen after discharge or heaven forbid, have a tracheostomy and go home on a ventilator. Uh, inflammation in the bowel leading to necrotizing enterocolitis, which can be devastating. And then again, pertinent to your, um, to your audience's infection. And so the, we know the immune system is, um, 
poorly developed or developing in these infants. They've often had a stressor that has caused them to come early. Many times that can be a maternal infection, whether that's a bloodstream infection, a, a urinary tract infection, a tear in um, the amniotic sac that uh, allows for an ascending infection from uh, the vaginal canal. And then there's all the things that we do uh, for and to these babies to keep them alive once they're born. So they have indwelling central lines, IVs, umbilical, venous and arterial catheters, endotracheal tubes. The list goes on and on of risk, even their skin. You know, it's so immature um, that, that we can get uh, fungal infections on the skin that can then become disseminated. So uh, we have uh, protocols upon protocols. So we have protocols for our smallest babies, our second size of smallest babies, our third size of smallest babies. Everything is really segmented out based on your specific risk factors. And that's been very helpful in improving our outcomes. Um, we pride ourselves on um, the very low number of nosocomial infections that we have, but we're always thinking about early onset and late onset sepsis in our neonatal population. They're very different groups of risk and they can be equally deadly. Yeah. Thanks for that. That was awesome. So um, since it is kind of, we introduced this as group B strep uh, uh, neonatal sepsis month or infection month, uh, you talked about early and late onset sepsis. Let's talk about that for a minute and what the different uh, looks of it is and the, the different organisms and maybe the, I think there's differences in mortality and outcomes as well with those. Absolutely. So let's start with group B strep because it is, in my humble opinion, a big win for the medical community. We have done a pretty darn good job. Nothing's perfect, but we have done a pretty darn good job of understanding how we can mitigate the risk uh, for a neonate developing group B strep sepsis. As with anything, our preterm population is at the highest risk, but term infants can die from group B strep sepsis. So we take this seriously. If you want to send a chill down the spine of an neonatologist on this Halloween day, just say, say GBS and we will, <laughs> we will come to attention. That's for sure. So what, um, what we know about group B strep is that it lives in, uh, the vaginal vault and the rectum of many people at many times. And so it is a normal, uh, uh, organism for an adult to be colonized with, including a pregnant woman. Uh, the problem is that neonates do not um, see that organism. Their immune system is not programmed and mature enough to see that organism for uh, up to like 90 days after delivery. And so that means that it's like, you know, it's like when uh, mom ran to the grocery store and all bets were off for what you were going to do uh, at home. You could dip into the candy or cookie jar or turn <laughs> on the TV. Well, group B streps takes that opportunity, but in a much more serious way uh, in the neonate and just grows like crazy, goes to town and becomes overwhelming sepsis. And so we know that early onset group B strep sepsis uh, has incredibly high and incredibly fast mortality. So we are talking about babies who, um, by all appearances were born healthy, 
were with mother baby in uh, the normal newborn nursery or the mother baby room uh, where we keep babies right now. We don't really use nurseries anymore. I don't know if you guys knew that, but there's, you don't go and look at the, at the babies all lined up in the nursery. Uh, everybody stays with their mom, which is the right thing to do, but you know, we're tucked away. And then these are the babies that in a matter of six to 12 hours after delivery are profoundly septic and die. And it is just like that and medical interventions, you know, it's just complete circulatory collapse and overwhelming sepsis. It is heartbreaking. When I was a trainee, one of my uh, coworkers lost their baby from the strep. This is real. Like these are babies. Um, these are our, our babies. And so, you know, we had to stop this horrific, um, you know, incidents. One is too many. And it was, it was more than one. Um, it was the most common cause of neonatal sepsis death in the United States, um, and the Western world. And so, uh, ACOG, the American college of obstetrics and gynecology and the AAP uh, American Academy of, uh, pediatrics, uh, started to think about how we could move things forward and understand this disease better. And then go towards prevention. And so over a series of years from the 1990s until recently, we've had a series of different recommendations on how we would uh, screen for and address group B strep sepsis. And so the first was, well, we'll screen for risk factors. Well, that didn't actually work very well because, um, you know, we, um, there's the risk factor was being human for being colonized with group B strep. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so we didn't screen universally with the recommendation that came out in the nineties. And then we pivoted in the early two thousands and said, you know, this worked a little bit, but we're missing 50% of disease or more actually. And so I think it was in the early 2000s, maybe 2002, we came up with universal screening. And so that was incredibly impactful in decreasing early onset sepsis with group B strep. So moms are screened between the 35th and the end of the 36th week. So we talk in fractions of weeks. So 35 and zero sevenths to 36 and uh, six sevenths is the recommendation for that. And it's just a culture of vaginal and rectal swab uh, sent to the lab culture. Did you see group B strep? Okay, you're going to get antibiotics uh, when you present for delivery. And um, that should decrease your baby's risk of being colonized uh, with antibiotic with uh, group B strep with that antibiotic exposure. And so we think that it decreases uh, the load in the vaginal vault during delivery. And we think that those antibiotics actually, if given in a timely manner, can um, achieve an MIC um, in the uh, baby's blood that if they did pick up some uh, group B strep, it's enough to kill those bacteria and let baby get on uh, with leading a happy and healthy life. And that, while not 100% um, reliable was astronomically better than the targeted um, risk factor screening. Um, and so we have essentially went, um, moved forward with that plan um, for the last 20 years uh, with some slight modifications over the course of um, uh, the last decade for how we deal with premature infants. So now if you go into preterm labor or if you're um, uh, sac is ruptured. Even if you're going to deliver by cesarean section, you're going to get those antibiotics because likely we don't have your screen back and, uh, those patients are at such high risk. 
the flaws, if I can talk just a little bit about this, the flaws people change their colonization status. And sometimes we don't get a great swab for a great culture. And so there's, um, depending on who you read, seven or 8% of women who screened negative, who end up positive. And so as a neonatologist, as a pediatrician, as a family doc, who is seeing newborns, you still always have to have your guard up that any infant could have uh, group B strep sepsis and that you have to manage it immediately. But I would say with the antibiotic prophylaxis, the, the group B strep that I've seen in the last two decades, um, having those antibiotics on board, having, uh, you know, that little, at least head start, these babies still can get really, really sick, but the mortality, uh, rates are lower. And so we can, uh, get antibiotics on board, get pressors on board, get these babies if they have to on heart lung bypass while we fight the infection and we pump their hearts and get oxygen into their blood. So we don't see, uh, you know, we, we have at least, you know, a little bit of lead time, uh, to get on top of things and, and hopefully see better outcomes. It still can be an absolutely devastating disease, but, um, but this is where ACOG and the AAP absolutely got it right with what we're doing. So, uh, that's pretty exciting. So, um, if you have questions about early onset, uh, um, group B, group B strep sepsis, uh, I can pause here and then we can absolutely talk about late onset sepsis, which is a whole different animal, interestingly enough. Yeah. I mean, I guess one question is, is, um, so I, I typically you would use a penicillin for group B strep, but then you probably have a protocol for people who are allergic, et cetera. And what do you do with the mother who shows up in labor, but maybe hasn't had prenatal care? Yeah. Oh, those are great questions. So yes, penicillin is indicated. I find that we use ampicillin more than penicillin because it's uh, easily available. And so most moms get ampicillin. If they are penallergic and that's proven, but they can tolerate a cephalosporin, then that's a reasonable alternative uh, to give a cephalosporin. If we're pretty concerned that they're going to go into anaphylaxis, even with a cephalosporin, then we can use clindamycin or vancomycin. If we can, if we know they're penallergic and we can get sensitivities on their culture, that can help us to determine whether or not clindamycin or vancomycin is indicated. Um, it it's a problem, right? Everybody born in the seventies is penicillin <laughs> allergic, right? They got a rash and, and seems like it. Yeah. <laughs> Most of it's not real, right? But it's Most hard to know. Most of it is not real. Exactly. <laughs> and, but it was kind of like the reflex. Yeah. You had a rash. You don't have penicillin ever again. Um, and so um, there are protocols in some obstetrical groups to do skin testing and, and do a little bit of a challenge to really see if you are penalogic, which can actually solve, um, you know, a lot of problems as you move forward in life and need antibiotic therapy, because those, um, penicillins are pretty narrow spectrum direct, you know, um, medications that have a lot of benefit as opposed to using, you know, the, the bigger guns that have the wider, uh, spectrum of, um, virulency. So yeah, so that's that. And then your second question, I already forgot. What was it? Um, well, women presenting in labor who maybe oh, didn't yeah, have prenatal care. Yep. We give them, we go ahead and give them antibiotics. If you're unknown and you're presenting, uh, in labor, then the protocol would be to get antibiotics. So absolutely. And then there's always, um, like I said, the question of, do you 
you know, could you still have sepsis? Um, and, or you, you, you delivered too rapidly. You got to the hospital. Well, I had this happen last month and you deliver in the parking lot, right? So you're not going to get an IV in that mom, even if she's uh, group B strep positive. So we have some great work done by, uh, some, uh, neonatologists and infectious disease specialists developing what we call the neonatal, um, sepsis risk calculator. And that's been developed on, um, based on, uh, using, uh, the, the Kaiser database, really large populations of patients, um, and looking at, um, patient, uh, and maternal and pregnancy elements, as well as then blood cultures and, um, patient outcomes to, um, to be able to enter some really specific elements into a computer program. And, um, it will help you to assign a risk category to the patient to help you to decide, you know, it, do I need closer observation? Should I grab a blood culture? Do I need closer observation of blood culture and maybe a couple of days of antibiotics and observation in a NICU? And so that's also uh, been helpful, number one, in getting the right patients uh, that closer eye. But number two, actually, what we've seen is it has cut antibiotic use uh, in neonates in half across the country. So it's been incredibly powerful because you know, nobody wants to be the doctor who missed the group B strep or the early onset infection. Um, and so, um, uh, antibiotic use was probably, um, too liberal, um, because we were, uh, you know, it's scary. Uh, and so this has been uh, a very good evidence-based tool to help to fine tune who we're prescribing antibiotics to. That's awesome. Um, with such rapid onset, you said in some cases, like they can present with sepsis within six to 12 hours and have really bad outcomes. How do you recognize that and act quickly enough to be able to get treatment to those babies? Yeah. Well, with your traditional untreated, um, unprophylact group B strep, you know, it was a losing battle. You, things that present as signs of infection in the neonate are so general. You can have fast breathing. You can have lethargy. You can have poor feeding. Uh, you can see, uh, low blood sugars. You know, some babies will present, um, with desaturations, you know, in the newborn nursery, we're not taking babies' blood pressures on a regular basis, but if we did, we'd see profound, um, hypotension. So it's really your astute nurse or, um, a parent that, you know, flag somebody and says, you know, the baby's not acting like they were at the last feed is, is what you are kind of, uh, hoping for because, you know, with healthcare, the way it is, the physician seeing that baby once a day, you know, in an academic center, you, you might have a resident and a fellow and a attending seeing, uh, the baby, but you know, the inner, the assessments are really at the parental or nursing standpoint. If you've sent a baby to the well, uh, newborn to learn how to breastfeed and, you know, maintain temperature. So, uh, cold babies, poor feeding babies, um, sleepy babies, those are kind of the first signs. And then, you know, as the neonatal team comes in, you know, every second is important. You've got to get IV access. You've got to get antibiotics on board. You've got to get appropriate respiratory support. You've got to start to manage the metabolic acidosis and the severe hypotension. Um, and, 
you know, all in a baby who's clamped down where IVs um, can be difficult to get. We've got the umbilical cord though. So that's always a nice saving grace is that, um, you know, we can get uh, usually central access through that umbilical cord and, and help resuscitate the babies that way. Yeah, diagnosing sepsis early on is always a complicated thing. I mean, we tried it in adults too, and you end up um, still overcalling it and doing inappropriate treatment or, or, you know, it's still, it's still not perfect. We just haven't found that key indicator that you could find, you know, that you know, there's evidence of it probably hours earlier in your baby's I mean, it's not, not a whole lot of time. It sounds like frequently, but the earlier you can get to it, the better. But figuring out what that key is has been elusive. Mm -hmm. So um, late onset group B strep. Yeah, if anything, it's a little bit scarier. So there's some correlation with late onset uh, group B strep sepsis. And we're talking after 30 days uh, up to about 90 days is the peak. Um, late onset sepsis actually is after three days, but really what we see with group B strep is there's kind of a peak, um, you know, between 30 and 90 days. And there's some correlation with mom's colonization, um, you know, prenatally right before um, delivery, but it doesn't correlate completely. And that's again, you know, was the culture right? Was, is the mom shifted her colonization pattern? But then if you think about it, um, in very few cases, uh, these days is, you know, a mom, a single caregiver of, mm -hmm. of a neonate. So many moms work outside the home. And so there's, uh, either a nanny or a grandparent or a daycare center. Um, there's, you know, a lot of different care, uh, opportunities. And so we think that there can be some, um, lateral transmission instead of vertical transmission of, uh, the organism, uh, for these neonates. Uh, the good thing about late onset um, group B strep sepsis is it's um, got a far lower uh, rate of mortality. The bad thing is that the rates of meningitis are much higher. And so we can, they can be pretty neurologically uh, devastating. Same antibiotics work though. And, and so it's really about, again, like everything in sepsis, early identification, getting those antibiotics on board. Even in our late onset group, our preemies are at higher risk than our um, than our term babies. So when I was a fellow in Utah, we had... Um, twins. I'll never forget them. And they would have been born at the early 23rd week. So that was really the limit of viability at that point in time. And to be an outborn, extremely preterm infant is a big hill to climb because you've got to deal with the transport. And that is uh, very treacherous. We're talking about high altitude and then you've got to get in a plane. And it was um, quite a miracle that they made it to Salt Lake City to the University of Utah uh, in and of, it, of itself. And then they um, had worked um, their way through the rooms uh, at Utah. It was before single patient rooms. And so we had room one, that's where the really, really sick babies were. And they were all, you know, you spent most of your time as a fellow in room one. And then room two, kind of, you're getting better. You still need respiratory support, but things are going good. Then uh, room three, four, you were, you know, almost better. They were in room eight. They were ready to go home, working on their final nippling skills on their apnea and bradycardia countdowns, like ticking all of the boxes. And then everything turned for both of them at the same time. And they both unfortunately had fatal group B strep sepsis on day of life, a hundred. Oh. 
it was devastating for the entire team. I'll never forget that case. Um, and, and so why them, it wasn't like it was an outbreak in the entire unit. It was those two kids and, um, it was just, just heartbreaking. And so we are, um, you know, always up against the battle with these micro preemies and, um, and how they, um, are at risk for, for this horrible, uh, bacterial disease. So that's just terrible. That's a terrible story. I know. <laughs> I just I think about my babies. Too. <laughs> great stories too. Neonatology is actually really great stories. Oh, they yes. are. Yeah. They are mostly great yeah. stories, but, um, yeah. <laughs> excuse me. Um, for late onset, um, I'm sure that a lot of this goes back to what parents recognize when, after they're home, um, what are some things that parents can look for? So it's the same things, sleeping more, not eating well, um, still up to 90 days. We don't see a lot of fever, cold temperatures can be just as, um, serious as, uh, hyperthermia. Um, and so if, uh, your baby's cold, clammy, not eating sleepy, or if they've got a fever, um, you know, if it's meningitis, you could see seizure like activity. Um, you know, if your baby's not acting like themselves, then they need, need medical attention. And this is not where you call into the office and get tomorrow's first available appointment. This is where you go to the emergency room, not the urgent care. Right. Um, and then you can get professionals to make a full assessment. And in, in these cases, you know, what, what we're looking for is, uh, the blood culture, uh, as the gold standard, um, CBCs are not real helpful in early onset, uh, sepsis. They can, be marginally helpful in the late onset sepsis. But, uh, if you're dealing with a preemie or a former preemie, um, you know, the bone marrow is still not as reliable as it is in an older person. And so, um, I will say that, uh, in GBS, the white count often drops very low as opposed to going very high. Um, but, uh, it's not something that's reliable enough that you can really hang your hat on that. Now, I remember being a medical student. It was a while ago, so I remember it very faintly, but I do remember it. And my first lumbar puncture was actually on a neonatal sepsis that was like, I don't know, seven or eight days old or something like that. So when when is lumbar puncture considered part of the new newborn fever workup? Is it always? Is it some of the time? Because you're obviously you're worried about group B strep and, you know, maybe some enteric organisms as well. Uh, yeah. So that has changed for the general peds population. Uh, used to be anybody under 90 days with a fever got a lumbar puncture. Now it's 30. Um, uh, in the NICU, it's controversial because meningitis is relatively rare uh, for early onset uh, disease. And um, our neonates are often pretty sick. And so oftentimes lumbar puncture, yes, no, is a conversation with the neonatologist and the pediatric infectious disease specialist about the uh, potential benefits versus the potential risks. Because if you remember that uh, positioning of that newborn, mm -hmm. you have to put them on their side, crunch them up, close their airway, uh, restrict their <laughs> pulmonary um, 
uh, ability to fill their lungs. So their tidal volumes go way down. And when you're uh, dealing with somebody on a ventilator on hundred percent oxygen, it's just not a possibility. And so, um, you know, the purest infectious disease specialist would say hundred percent of the time, if you're concerned about infection, you get a lumbar puncture, the, um, person who's practicing day to day and, and really taking care of a lot of these sick kids would know that it's a little bit more nuanced than that. But when in doubt, um, definitely consider it and definitely have a conversation about it. The only thing I remember is being scared to death. I was going to screw something up. <laughs> right. I'm sure you were well supervised. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about GBS, um, both early onset and late onset. What are some other um, infectious disease challenges that you have in neonates? Yeah. One of our biggest, um, uh, concerns is E. coli. So pretty simple urinary tract infections are really common in pregnancy. And that's what good prenatal care, um, can help to detect early because they can often be asymptomatic until they've led to preterm labor and ascending infection. And, um, and so many of these kiddos can be born quite ill, uh, with early onset, uh, E. coli sepsis, uh, and E. coli, while it's not GBS is a pretty aggressive organism as well, depending on the strain that you get. And so we, uh, are often thinking about that. Um, pseudomonas is, um, is one that can kind of, um, reach out and get you occasionally. Um, and it's not, um, part of what we generally cover with our early onset sepsis with ampingent. So it's one that kind of keeps me up at night a little bit. Um, if a baby doesn't immediately respond to our initial antibiotics, I'll start to think, um, uh, early about pseudomonas. And then, um, you know, it's, it's unit dependent and population dependent, but, um, you know, some units really struggle with MRSA, um, or VRE depending on, um, their antibiotic use. We've really streamlined, uh, our antibiotic use in our clinical practice. Uh, the sepsis calculator has helped and, um, discontinuing uh, discontinuation of antibiotics at 36 hours. If the culture is negative, really using that culture as the gold standard has been really helpful in, uh, shifting the types of organisms and, um, the number of infections that we're seeing in, uh, our particular nurseries here in Omaha. So that's something that I think is just general best practice for a neonatologist. And um, it's also really scary to not use the antibiotics. But if you start to understand that they drive, um, you know, what's growing on your patients and in your unit, and they um, disrupt the microbiome, and, you know, there's a lot of different repercussions from their use. They're not the safety net that they might appear to be, and it becomes a little bit easier to adjust your practice for that. Yeah. So pregnant woman with a UTI is one of the few indications we have for treating asymptomatic bacteria. For those of you still treating adults, uh, that's world and with urine and adults and being sterile versus not sterile has changed tremendously, but that is still an indication for treatment because of the reasons that Dr. Barry was just talking about. What other unique challenges do you have in in these neonatal babies uh, in the NICU trying to feed them and, and everything else? Yeah, so um, 
feeding is critical. Growth is critical. Um, and you know, we're giving, um, preferentially mother's breast milk, um, and that's going through feeding tube. So, um, you know, this wonderful product came out, out on the market, 30 day feeding tubes. And everybody said, Oh, great. We don't have to change the tubes for 30 days. <laughs> and <laughs> then, uh, some smart, uh, group of individuals. Um, I think they were at this is awful because I know there's a huge rivalry. They were either at Duke or North Carolina. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just give both schools credit. Um, they started testing uh, the colonization of the hub where you'd plug the syringe tubing in as well as the tip. What's in the, um, in this, the baby's stomach um, at different intervals. And what they found is by day four, the colonization at the hub and uh, distally with horrible enteric pathogens was through the roof. And so uh, one thing that our unit has adopted is switching out those 30-day tubes twice a week. And that has been incredibly helpful. We have um, uh, and work very hard to have low rates of necrotizing enterocolitis or infection and inflammation of the bowel, which can be deadly as well. Um, and then, you know, provision of mother's breast milk comes with a whole, um, different assortment of, uh, infection control issues. And so on our, uh, NICU quality team is, uh, on, as a permanent member is infection, um, prevention and infection, uh, control. And so anytime we are, um, introducing a new product into the NICU, we always think about the, uh, infection implications. And so, uh, we pride ourselves also on a high degree of support for our breastfeeding mothers. And, you know, there'll be weeks where every single mother in the NICU is uh, a breastfeeding mom, which means we need a pump in every room. And that mom has to have personal pump, uh, equipment, which is long, skinny, tubing that gets uh, high humidity. And so we have probably spent hundreds of hours talking in the NICU about how we uh, keep clean and sterilize uh, breast pumps, breast pump kits, uh, flanges, um, nipple shields. And then um, when babies aren't breastfeeding, because uh, moms can't be 100% available, uh, we have to have bottle systems. And, um, you know, the, the free disposable bottles are not necessarily the best for uh, a neonate who's learning the complex um, issues of suck, swallow, feed, and how to do that when you have a little bit of chronic lung disease and maybe a patent ductus arteriosus or all the other complications of immaturity and prematurity. Uh, so we need some specialized bottles with um, maybe some more sophisticated um, parts. And so we talk a lot about how we keep these things clean and sterile and not transmitting um, infectious organisms, um, to others. Uh, I mentioned pseudomonas earlier, but this is one area where we really worry, you know, even the faucets, right. Do you worry about how clean your faucets are in every unit on in the hospital? Well, probably because we want a clean hospital, but in the NICU, it can be deadly. Uh, and so there's, uh, case series, uh, in our published literature about how, you know, those, you, um, faucets can harbor pseudomonas if they don't, uh, clear themselves and, you know, how close can a food prep counter be to a faucet and, um, what kind of splash guards do we need to have? So we think about a lot of these things. Um, who's heard of, heard of a snoo? Anybody know what a snoo is? Mm -hmm. 
It is a super fancy um, bed, like a bassinet that's got a computer in it essentially. And it knows how to shake your baby and can sense when they're kind of waking up and get them to kind of jiggle themselves back to sleep. And, um, you know, many uh, families swear by it as uh, helping their babies to, you know, sleep um, more soundly and get through the night or get longer periods of sleep. Well, we care for a pretty um, uh, intense group of patients who have had uh, perinatal narcotic exposure from moms who um, have either medical needs or are on medical assisted therapy for their um, substance use disorder. And those babies go through withdrawal when they're born. And so we care for them so that they can, we can manage their uh, withdrawal um, with um, hopefully environmental options. So we just got a snoo, the company um, donated a snoo to our unit. So we're going to be trying that out. Uh, but, you know, it's um, got all sorts of, you know, covers and soft things. And so that's one thing that we've been working on a lot in our um, infection control policies is how do we clean the snoo so that it can go from one patient to an X. So you should, you should Google snoo. Um, it's quite a remarkable um, intervention. We've tried it on our first patient and it, the nurses said it was wonderful. Like it made that baby so much more comfortable than our regular equipment would have allowed. So we're pretty excited about that innovation in our nursery as well. Yeah, definitely. We'll have to check that out. Yeah. Another question that I have for infection prevention in the NICU is how do you handle visitation? I mean, there's always going to be extended family that wants to come see the baby and siblings that want to come see the baby. And so obviously they're all of them bring things with them when they come in. Yeah, there's a lot of different perspectives on visitation in, in NICUs. And I will say my bias leans towards family-centered care. We serve a lot of different families at our uh, inner city academic medical institution, and they aren't all as privileged as we are to be able to reach out to family or friends or hire a babysitter for their uh, older siblings. And it's also a very traumatic time to have a baby in the NICU and to have your family all together in one room can be incredibly important, even if uh, you're one of the more well babies in the nursery. And certainly if you're one of the sicker babies in the nursery, a lot of visitors might not be appropriate, but if you're at end of life, then your entire family needs to be in there. So we have to have an understanding about um, what are some basic guidelines. So you need to be up to date on your immunizations, you need to not actively be having uh, cold or flu-like symptoms. You need to be able to um, do appropriate hand hygiene, or at least have a parent who can control <laughs> your hand hygiene, right? And then there are developmental windows of opportunity for uh, a visit to the NICU. So we usually say or recommend the same number of minutes as you are in years. So you're not going to bring a three-year-old in and expect them to sit there for four hours while you're doing skin to skin and can't be up and, you know, and holding them. Um, you know, that's best case scenario. And, and our staff works really well with families to try to, um, mitigate any special, uh, circumstances. Um, it was hard, I think for, um, for neonatologists, COVID was probably the hardest because of our extreme visitor restrictions. Um, our moms have to come visit because they're breastfeeding. They're providing milk. Our moms have also 
almost by definition, if, if a baby is in the NICU, the mom's pretty sick too, right? Those two kind of pair up. And so to say, well, the mom can come in, but the partner can't support her means that you're asking a person who just had surgery to walk by themselves all the way across our campus and, you know, be able to go to the bathroom by herself, be able to get her pump, you know, pick up her baby. It just doesn't work that way. So we really had to be strong advocates for our families to be able to visit, um, both as a mom and a partner. Um, and then we were early to bring back, um, additional, uh, family visitors because it is such a trying time in uh, a family's life. Uh, and family centered care not only helps the family deal with this, but it actually helps the outcome for the baby. So, um, having the mom and, uh, partner at the bedside, um, the more hours are at the bedside, the better the outcome of the neonatus. And if we leave, and separate the family and make siblings stay home that dramatically decreases the number of parent hours at the bedside. So that's been something that we've worked with. And I think, um, yeah, differences of opinion with infection. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sure yeah. that there were, <laughs> you know, a physician needs to be advocate for her patients and right. do so in a safe manner, right? Like we were not asking that every every person walk in and that they didn't wear a mask or anything like that. We wanted to follow the parameters, but you know, when your patient outcomes are at risk, you've got to advocate for um, families to be together. Absolutely. Um, so I know we're coming up to the top of the hour. Is there anything that we've missed that you'd like to talk about? Oh, um, just how, um, how amazing neonatal medicine is. I hope you've gotten a peek at that. I'm probably going to be the last neonatologist you'll have on the, on the podcast for a while. So I hope that uh, your listeners can understand what a privilege it is to practice neonatal medicine, that it's a team sport. Uh, our nurses are amazing. Our respiratory therapists are amazing. Our lab techs, our clerks, our neonatal nurse practitioners. We're proud to be a, a training program with uh, phenomenal medical students, residents, and fellows. So um, it's a complex system. And um we are constantly working to improve. It's a phenomenal area of on, you know, ongoing research in every organ system and, and how they interact. So um, I hope I've piqued your interest. And in, uh, if you're a trainee listening, uh, definitely sign up for a month. It's uh, a really cool opportunity to make a big impact. What I think about with neonatology is that you know, I get to apply all of the intensive medical care that's often applied at the end of life in adults. But if I am good at it, I can get an, a good 80 years out of those interventions. And every minute matters uh, at the beginning of life in um, how we react and how uh, that baby's lifetime outcome will be. So it's a big responsibility, but it's also really joy filled. It sounds like there is never a dull moment. There is <laughs> never a dull moment. Every day is different. <laughs> I know I've learned a lot today. Yeah, this was Great. this was awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. If um, we may have to find another special event to have you back on to talk about again, this was great. Well, I've certainly enjoyed talking to the two of you, and I'm thankful for the opportunity. Hopefully, I passed the test of my first podcast experience. It's uh, it's just been a pleasure. Have flying colors. All right.
any questions for us or anything uh, that uh, else that you'd like to say before we depart? Uh, I guess I'm just interested in what, uh, what drives your passion for um, podcasting, particularly in this area. I think it's so um, interesting. I, I listened to a few of your podcasts before I came on and it's such a wide variety. So I'd just be interested in, in hearing a little bit of the origin story, maybe. I'll let Rick tell the story. It was his idea. So, <laughs> yeah. So um, I just, I don't know. I wanted to try to get um, people's stories out there and, and educate at the same time um, that were involved somehow in something related to infection prevention, infectious disease, or, you know, medicine in general. There's so many, you know, as an infectious disease doc, I think a lot of people didn't even know, you know, who we are, what we were, or anything. And then COVID came along and there were tons of people doing lots of work, you know, that had been behind the scenes. And now we're all of a sudden thrust into the limelight and political debates and all kinds of other stuff that, you know, we're, we're much more, uh, you know, anonymous as people and in general, you know, we work, you know, we do things to try to keep people well and keep them out of the hospital and whatnot. But I thought it was good opportunity for people to just be able to tell their story much like you I mean you you have a you know you have a tremendous role in medicine and taking care of the people you take care of but most people hope that they don't ever have to meet you um you know same as same as us but yet it's it's a huge uh part of the people who's you touch lives and, and I think it, you know what what goes into that what goes into your training what goes into your thinking why do you enjoy what you do what you're passionate about and so we wanted to give people kind of an opportunity to share those things fantastic well I think it's a great service I appreciate the opportunity to be a small part of it thank you very much happy yeah. Halloween yeah same to you <laughs> are you are you trick-or-treating tonight I, well, we'll see what tricks and treats those babies throw at me. I am on call tonight. So you never know what's going to happen from hour to hour. Well, I hope it is a low key night for you. I'd be okay <laughs> with that. I'd be okay with being able to stay home and hand out candy. That would be fantastic. But my husband will take over if, if I have to leave. So it'll be fine. Well, I hope everybody does well tonight for, for your call. Thank you for Thank joining you. us. Yeah. You guys have a great day. Bye-bye. Yes. Thank you. And for all of our listeners out there, don't forget to join us on Twitter at Dirty underscore Drinks to be part of the conversation. And we will catch you on the next episode of Dirty Drinks. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at Dirty underscore Drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, Reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.